0: We're inundated with health news every day, and so often it's conflicting.
1: How do you find the facts that make the most sense? Today we'll be talking about a whole host of topics. Eggs are good. Eggs are bad. Which is it? Is intermittent fasting actually good for you? One of our favorite topics? Poop. Let's talk about fecal transplants. And what about vaping? This one is in the news a lot right now. Is it as bad as smoking a cigarette? What do people really need to know? And finally, let's talk about medicinal marijuana and CBD. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And even if we don't agree on everything with each other during this episode, this is still Be Healthistic.
2: Welcome to Be Healthistic, the podcast that is more than just health and wellness information. It's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. Health isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. Everyone has their own needs to be healthistic. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Drs. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. They'll share with you the best that traditional and modern medicine has to offer so that you could be more productive and more proactive in managing your overall health. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts.
1: Hi folks, before we launch into our discussion today, I wanted to encourage you to be a proactive member of our Be Healthistic community. If you like what you hear today and you wanna listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Also, check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will feature video versions of our episodes, plus video extras you won't want to miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steven Sinatra, and other Healthy Directions experts, as well as a robust library of health and wellness content over on the Healthy Directions site. So visit healthydirections.com to explore our database of well-researched content and information. And of course, you can always follow us on our social media channels. So in the
0: spirit of what's hot and what's not in the news, it seems to be so prevalent at conferences. You know, I go to a lot of conferences and everybody's selling CBD oil where they're talking about medical marijuana, good grass versus bad grass, so to speak, you know? What are some of the benefits here?
1: Yeah, well, we'll talk about CBD first, right? Because CBD is something that you can you can get, uh, you know, over the counter in, um, in all states. And this stands for um, cannabidiol. And it's a compound that comes from cannabis that has lots of uh, pain-relieving qualities. It has uh, qualities that, that help reduce anxiety. It can help with sleep. It can reduce inflammation. You know, children take it for seizure disorders, So it definitely has lots of benefits to it. And what I like about CBD is that it's non-psychoactive. So, non-psychoactive means you will not get high from taking it. Just to clarify, there is a difference between THC and CBD. CBD is non-psychoactive, which means you're not going to get high taking it, and it does not affect your cognition. THC is psychoactive. Meaning? So it's not addictive? Well, the, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that is a question I'm not sure if I can answer. Addictive, but let's, let, let's say safe, okay? Can I answer mm-hmm. that question? Is it safe? I think CBD in, in smaller amounts is safe. Now, addictive, well, that's a tough one to answer because if someone is is let's say if they're reliant on opioids for for pain relief, would I rather have them taking CBD? I think I would to help with the pain relief rather than an opioid. So it's 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 a debate around you know semantics there.
0: Hey, it's a good point. I mean, let's face it, opioids uh, have a huge downside. I mean, the addiction rate is is awful and. The way I look at this, if you want to use medical marijuana or CBD and you're trying to alleviate pain, I would be in favor of it. I would say that this is a, a good choice because pain does a lot of bad things to the body. It overcharges the sympathetic nervous system and has effect on heart rate variability. And as a heart specialist, if we can alleviate pain and suffering. To me, that's a big plus in getting our health, you know, in the right
1: direction. You know, when people that are in chronic pain, I mean, it affects their mood. It affects their sleep. It affects their energy. It's, it's terrible to be in chronic pain.
0: Yes. And I'm still a little bit taken back about medical marijuana and CBD. And I'll tell you why. I really like pets. I mean, I've had pets all my life, and I actually learned a lot about coenzyme Q10 with my own dogs. It was amazing how coenzyme Q10 prolonged their lifespan because a lot of the canines, they get cardiomyopathy. I used to give my dogs lots of CoQ10 and omega-3s, and, and it, was, it was wonderful. So I work with a lot of vets, and I, and I took the pulse of several vets about CBD, for pets, because this is a big product right now in the pet industry. And some of the vets pushed back. And that gave me pause. Now, if a vet is pushing back in a dog, oh my gosh, what does that mean for a human? Why were the vets pushing back? Well, true, you know, I, I asked the vets that question. And the consensus was that it was still new. And, you know, more research was necessary. And these vets didn't want to, you know, use CBD in their animals until... You know, more research was definitive on this subject. So it would be, they were being cautious, which I embrace.
1: The other debate is with the cannabis, the medical right. marijuana. Now, certainly, I think people can, can abuse that. That's where the abuse comes in, right? If they're wanting to get high, right, instead of using it for pain reduction or sleep or anxiety or whatever it is. So people listening to this, you know, you need to be really careful about the addiction piece with medical marijuana. And I agree 100% with my father on that one. As a naturopath doctor practicing in California, I actually cannot legally uh, recommend medical marijuana to patients, so I don't. But I do discuss CBD, I have conversations around CBD. And I'll tell you this, I've learned a lot from my patients over the last five years. And what I've learned is that I've had patients come in where they've been on Ativan, they've been on Ambien, and they want an alternative for sleep. And they've come in already you know, been on CBD and they've tried it and they've received incredible benefits from taking it. So I learned from them in the beginning that sleep is a really good thing that can help with. And also anxiety, too, which I didn't really know about. Because I've been to, I think I've been to about three conferences now, one specifically on CBD. Uh, the a m last year, there was a couple talks that we listened to about um, CBD and the you know risks and benefits and such. When we're talking about medical marijuana, I, I think we really need to proceed with caution here.
0: Well, you're correct about saying patients are our best teachers. I mean, I agree 100% with that. So in your experience, are you saying that in the Insomnia Act or in in, in in situations of insomnia, you would consider CBD?
1: It, it's something uh, very gentle that you can start off with and see how the body responds. Now, from what I've gathered, not everyone responds to CBD, right. right? It's not a cure-all. There is no cure-all in medicine. But I think it can be helpful for some people who are suffering from insomnia or anxiety.
0: So, Drew, another topic in the news is fasting. This is something that's close to my own heart, you know, because... Uh, Throughout my days in college wrestling and high school wrestling, I used to fast. I didn't know it back then, but I would lose 12 to 14 pounds a week to make weight. And I didn't know it, but I was sort of doing a ketone diet, but it wasn't called the ketone diet back then.
1: Yeah, well, the the keto diet is really a diet to help put you into a state of fat burning mode, which you're using ketones as a fuel source instead of glucose. And what fasting can do is it can accelerate you into ketosis. That's why we do fasting on some levels. So you, you're accelerated into ketosis. So for those of you who don't know, ketosis is when the body burns fat as fuel as opposed to glucose. And so if you're doing intermittent fasting, which as a definition for our listeners, this can vary anywhere from a 12-hour fast all the way up to like an 18-hour fast. So let's just say it's an 18-hour fast. You, you eat dinner at, at, at 6 p.m. the night before. You go to bed. You wake up. There's no breakfast, but you eat at noon and now you've done an 18 hour intermittent fast and that's a great fast to do to really kickstart you into ketosis. Now look, it's going to take multiple, multiple, multiple days and a low carb diet with higher fat in there to put you into full blown ketosis and you can measure yourself. You can do get these ketone meters and you can look to see if you're over 0.7, which is the level at which you're in ketosis and if you're there, you'll likely stay there for a while. And I think the ketogenic diet is safe for short-term use, from what I've gathered. It's really good for neurological, neurodegenerative conditions. It's good for cancer. And uh, it's good for metabolism in general. If people want to lose weight, if they do the ketogenic diet, they can certainly lose some weight. Now, the question arises is, is the ketogenic diet safe long-term? And I don't think we have the answers yet. Yeah, I would
0: agree. And a lot of people who do the ketogenic diet, say, their brain function soars. I mean, they have incredible insights. They think clearly. There's no brain fog. So the the ketogenic diet, and remember, the brain relies on ketones as well. Exactly.
1: Well, Well, you know, what I think is happening there is I've done the keto diet before, and I definitely noticed that improve brain function. I mean you just have this clarity, right? You just have this like focus that you've never had before. And what I think is happening is you don't have these blood sugar roller coaster rides happening in your body. So right, you don't have a you don't have a meal and all of a sudden your blood sugar is shooting up and then a half an hour, 45 minutes to an hour later, it's plummeting again. And that can cause issues with your brain function. Yeah. So in the ketogenic diet, blood sugar is really stable.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that as well. The the ketogenic diet, what I've heard from my colleagues who do it. They say it's remarkable for their brain power. I mean, it's no doubt about it. And remember this, one of the earlier treatments of Alzheimer's disease or pre-senile dementia was using coconut oil. I remember being at conferences where this was discussed, where if patients were eating a lot of saturated fat and coconut oil, were avoiding sugars and carbohydrates, they were putting themselves into a ketogenic state with with some fasting and, and the coconut and this improved brain function. So this could be sort of an anecdote to a lot of us who forget where we put our glasses, where we put our car keys, you know, and God forbid if we drive in our car we can't find our home again, I mean, you know, while while we're driving around. I've heard this from my patients many times. So there might be something about intermittent fasting or the ketogenic diet that is really supportive of our brain health as well.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. The ketogenic diet is is certainly not for everyone. Uh, It's it's a challenge. I'll be totally honest here. I mean, I did it for around two weeks and I found it to be very challenging. I mean, the amount of fat that you're consuming is unprecedented. I'd never done that before in my life. And it is really a a low carb, carb restriction type diet. And it's challenging. And you also experience, at least I did, my wife did, uh, the ketogenic flu which is a period of around four to five days, maybe four to six days after you start, you feel terrible. I had headaches. I had fatigue. I actually had brain fog. And then all of a sudden, that storm passed, probably when I was transitioning into ketosis. And that's when I started to have the, uh, the benefits of like improved energy, sustained energy, improved brain function, et cetera. It sounds
0: like your body was detoxing and basically before the body improves, it gets a little bit worse before it gets better because I think you were doing a, a detoxification. Well, syndrome. you
1: know, you, you you store a lot of toxins in your fats. right? And when you're on the ketogenic diet, you're burning fat. So you're releasing exactly. toxins into your bloodstream. And you release. it. You hit it, it right there. Yeah. yeah. Now, going back to intermittent fasting, I think this is something that, again, is not for everyone. Because I know people that are hypoglycemic, right? They get low blood sugar and they feel like, oh, God, there's no way I could do this. There's no way I could skip breakfast. So it's something that you may want to try out at some point and see how your body feels. And maybe do it more than once. Maybe do an intermittent fast Monday and Wednesday. And uh, on that Wednesday in the afternoon, to see how you feel. You know, how do you, how do you start to feel at that point? But over time, you'll notice there's better glucose regulation in the body. And a lot of people report that their energy is just so stable. Their mood is stable. And again, back to the cognitive function. It's clear and focused. Well said. And if people want to fast, maybe doing a 12-hour fast first,
0: followed by an 18-hour fast, maybe a 24-hour, and then gradually uh go into it
1: correct i mean i think most people already do a 12-hour fast overnight so the next step is really trying a 14 and then a 16 and then an 18. and then um, look you and i when you were practicing medicine i used to shadow you when i was a teenager i remember there was two times where we did a two-day water fast actually we did a water fast two day and then we did a juice fast on two day well, that's and, right and that we, we did the juice fast back then yeah that's right and so you know fasting in general is is amazing for many different benefits you know including the cardiovascular system right metabolism and I think you know this already, but um, what fasting can do is it actually promotes autophagy. Yeah. Okay, this is a word that our listeners are gonna be hearing uh, very commonly in the next uh, you know, five years or so, because autophagy is a condition, not really a condition, it's a way for the body to break down substances. So let's say you, it's like taking out the trash, okay? So right. you, your cells- It's are, a detoxification. It's a detoxification mechanism. And really what autophagy does is it promotes longevity. It's really an anti-aging thing that our body does naturally that can be promoted via fasting.
0: Now, there's another term, mitography, mitochondria autography, so to speak. All right, I like that. And this is another way of, of of actually regenerating your mitochondria because I believe in the mitochondrial theory of aging. I've always believed in that. And while we're on this subject, because, you know, one of the purpose of our podcast is to be leading edge, cutting edge. So some of our listeners may be privy to the term mTOR. Can you, you know, comment on that?
1: Yeah, so my understanding is that intermittent fasting actually helps uh, suppress mTOR, which is going to promote autophagy.
0: Right. In other words, mTOR is sort of the battleground, so to speak, Mm -hmm. where we're going to put out a lot of toxins from the breakdown of, of enzymes, breakdowns of proteins, and you know everything else that we, we take into our body.
1: You know, there, you probably know this better than I do, but there's that drug rapamycin. Oh yeah, that's used for anti-aging benefits, right. and I believe it has a suppression effect on mTOR. Right, right. I was at a conference. I don't know if you were there. No, actually, it was in Florida. Uh,
0: they were talking about this. This is a TB drug. Yes. Uh, that they we're yes. using for anti-aging purposes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So anyway, that's great. Okay, another thing in the news today there's a lot about fecal transplantation
1: Mm -hmm. yeah drew what are your views on that from what i've read the research i've looked into and doctors that i've spoken to and even patients that have actually had this done to them there is a time and a place for fecal transplants and for the audience listening you're thinking to yourself what the heck are these guys talking about and fecal transplants as it sounds you're actually taking feces From a donor, yes. Okay, and we'll talk about the importance of a good, clean, healthy donor. You're actually taking poop from this person, and you're actually inserting it via an enema into you, into your rectum, into your. You're taking their microbiome, correct? Which is presumed very quote healthy,
0: and you're injecting it into your rectum, which is not so healthy. And the premise is that is that their healthy microbiome will overwhelm
1: the unhealthy bacteria in your gut and create a new microbiome you said is that it. the premise you said it perfectly Darren. and and really what's happening here is what we know from the research is there's a condition called clostridium difficile okay this is a, yes. this is an overgrowth of bacteria that's very common these days it's happening in hospitals all the time partly because of overzealous use of, of antibiotics you know when they're overly prescribed and used for long periods of time in a hospital c diff or C. diff overgrowth is really big and really common. And so the research shows that if you give someone a fecal transplant that has treatment resistant C. difficile, their symptoms, their C. difficile infection overgrowth improves. It's amazing stuff. It's amazing stuff. So how do you know you have a good donor? Yeah, I, I, um, I never counsel patients on this. I always refer out for this because it's, it's, not, uh, it's really not in my wheelhouse. You know, I'm not a gastroenterologist. I do like treating the gut, and I do treat a lot of gut conditions. But this is someone you really need to have expertise with. So, you know, talk to your doctor about it. There are some gastroenterologists where I am in the Bay Area that do fecal transplants, uh, particularly with people that have C. diff. But, you know, there's there's definitely lots of information out there you can read on how to do this. But you've got to find a donor that has, like my father said, a very a clean uh, microbiome. Let's say someone that hasn't been on antibiotics for their whole life, okay? Right, right. Someone that isn't on uh, pharmaceuticals right now and someone that's eating a very clean diet. It's not under a lot of stress. This might be hard to find in our society these days, but there are donors out there, I recommend that um, you obviously test this donor's stool. You want to make sure that there's no pathogenic bacteria or other infections that are present, because why would you want to introduce those infections into your gut? But really, this is someone you want to talk to someone that really knows everything about fecal transplants before you do this. This is not something that you do at home.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, a lot of us, you know, may think it's Star Wars medicine, but it really isn't. I mean, this is something that's going to be I think this is going to be a conventional treatment for IBS and IBD. Yeah, so I have a feeling this is this is going to be the wave of the future, and that's what this program is all about: is giving our listeners, you know, some information that may not be
1: mainstream, 100% now, but could be later on. Because you know, if you have C. difficile, it is not a fun infection oh, no. to have. I mean, let's talk about watery diarrhea. You're just going to be going and going and going and going. And guess what? The antibiotics like vancomycin may not be able to, to overcome that and take care of that. So this is something that you might need to look into in the future.
0: All right, great,
1: great. So in our
0: spirit of controversial topics or non-controversial ones, vaping has been in the news recently. You know, I guess the thought about vaping was that we don't want our kids to smoke, but we could can we give them an alternative where they don't smoke? Because, you know, the data on this is frightening, even though the amount of cigarettes consumption has gone down in the country. The amount of smoking in young girls and boys, particularly more girls than boys, in the 15-year-old age group is alarming. So it's it's getting really serious. I'm concerned that this vaping may be a, a sheep in the wolf's clothing. What do you
1: think? I think so too. From, from what I know, when you vape, you're still getting exposure to nicotine. Oh, you're absolutely. still getting exposure to these chemicals that are present Uh, in tobacco. Now, from what I've read, the, uh, the extent of exposure to chemicals might be less, but we actually don't really know yet. So in my opinion, it's just like smoking, but it's pretty, it's sexy, in the sense that you smell this nice aroma in the air, right? I mean, I pass by people in their cars, and their, their whole car is just filled with smoke. I'm like, what are you doing to yourself, right? I mean, it's just like smoking.
0: Yeah, and on the news, I saw a couple of chest x-rays, which really scared me. And, and kids have been placed on ventilators for this. Apparently, the oils, these volatile oils, in, in the substance that they're inhaling, ages the lungs significantly. So a teenager can end up with
1: a fifty-year-old lung overnight. I mean, this is scary stuff. I, I think just the concept of smoking is just very odd to me. I mean, we're introducing this smoke into our lungs. I mean, why would we want to do that? I under- get it. I, I get it, though, because it's addicting, right? You start smoking, and it's the nicotine component that gets that gets people hooked. And they say the nicotine is actually more addictive than heroin or cocaine. Oh well, yes, sir. I get it, you know, but it's just for me. Ah, oh, it just baffles me why people even start smoking in the first place.
0: I guess you and I are all out on vaping. I mean, we're not going to endorse that at all. Not at all. We, we don't want any of our listeners to encourage any of their children to consider that at all. And, at least until more research comes out. Yeah, and I, I think it's real scary right now, and it's something that uh, we just have to take off the plate. You know, Drew, I'm a heart specialist, and I've always had the dilemma of eggs. You know, are eggs good for you, or eggs bad for you, whether they're organic or non-organic? And let's face it, I mean, eggs contain a lot of cholesterol. A couple of medium-sized to two large-sized eggs is about 300 milligrams of cholesterol, which is really, you know, the maximum amount you want to take into your diet. Eggs bring a lot to the table. You know, the yolks are protein, uh, contain a lot of tyrosine. They have some magnesium in there. Eggs have a light side to it. But like anything else, if you abuse eggs, you know, could eggs have a downside? Uh, as a naturopath, what are your feelings on this?
1: Well, you know, with anything in medicine and food, I tend to tend to look at moderation as something that is very important. So should you be eating three eggs a day, every day, seven days a week? Probably not. But what I like to suggest is, you know, if you're going to have eggs maybe once or twice a week, that's probably okay from what we know. But, hey, it's conflicting. The evidence out there. Is conflicting.
0: Yeah, it is conflicting. However, a couple of studies got to my core. You know, there was a, a study several years ago in a, in a cancer journal showing that if you had more than two and a half eggs per week, this increased prostate cancer in a male. In fact, I think the number was about 47%. Kind of striking. Mm-hmm. Recently, in a JAMA study came out this year, if you took in 300 milligrams a day of excess cholesterol from eggs, this also increased your cardiovascular risk. As a, as a heart specialist, I would say this. If you eat eggs in moderation, if you eat eggs maybe one to three times a week, I think that would be a good alternative to eating eggs every day. We don't want people to do that. And again, eggs bring a lot to the table. They have some good nutritional value. So I would say that this is probably a, a dilemma for a lot of people. So I agree with you 100% moderation is key here on this on this one food substance that uh, you know all of us seem to enjoy on a, on, a, on a weekly basis unfortunately some of us like it on a daily
1: basis anyway i love eggs too but uh, yeah it really it's time to kind of cut back and and we don't really know what's happening here we don't really know what's causing this increase in cardiovascular risk perhaps increased cancer risk you know, maybe it's the way the eggs are prepared. Maybe there's a level of oxidized fat that's happening with the way certain eggs are prepared. So we, we just need more information here before we can really move forward with suggestions. But I think we, what our you know, listeners can walk away with is hey, in moderation, eggs are okay.
0: Agree 100%, despite some of the negative bad news out there. So, what are some takeaways we can t- uh, talk about? What are some of the things we can talk about on this broadcast? Eggs have a light side and a dark side, right? Mm-hmm. Vaping is We're obviously out. out.
1: There's tremendous benefit or at least potential for fecal transplants. Yes. And
0: marijuana? We'll we'll
1: Well, take away here. I I think CBD, uh, for now, you know, in small amounts, I think it is safe. And then the medical marijuana, that's really a topic to have with your doctor. I mean, that's a whole different thing about THC and, you know, the psychoactive components there.
0: Great. I'm complete.
1: So, before we wrap up today's show, I wanted to remind you about a regular segment we'll be doing here on the Be Healthistic podcast. We're calling it Wellness Wisdom, and it'll feature all sorts of interesting tips, facts, studies, and trends that are relevant to that day's topic. It'll give us an opportunity to give you one last nugget of information to take away with you, which hopefully will make an impact on your overall wellness. Because, as I've said before, small tips can add up to huge benefits. Today, we've been talking about trending health topics, so our wellness wisdom has to do with another health issue that's been gaining traction, how social media impacts mental health especially in teen girls. We all know from a slew of recent studies that social media certainly has an impact on our mental health and well-being in teens and adults. But according to this research recently published in the journal, The Lancet, Child and Adolescent Health, social media itself might not be to blame for mental health issues. Rather, the fact that it takes time away from a teen's physical activity and sleep quality while also exposing users to cyberbullying is what leads to lower self-esteem and depression. It's a subtle difference, but it's really interesting. The researchers found that, in both sexes, very frequent social media use was associated with greater psychological distress, but the effect was especially clear among girls. The more often they check social media, the greater their distress. So what can we do to curb the negative impact that social media can have on our teens' thoughts and emotions? It seems straightforward, but a good first step is to set limits on how much time your teen spends on social media especially if that time is conflicting with a good workout or getting a good night's sleep. Generally, another great tip is to make a rule that family time at home is as screen-free as possible. Set limits on screen time for all family devices. Make the dinner table a device-free zone, and set a curfew for all devices to be put away for the night. This will also give the whole family a chance to power down properly and get our bodies ready for sleep. This is an issue that will continue to evolve as we find out more about how new technology impacts our health and wellness. We'll keep you updated. Remember, everyone, if you liked what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at HealthyDirections.com as well as on our social media channels. Check it out. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. Until next time, this is Be Healthistic.
2: Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra. See you next time.